We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. We'll read the first 18 verses of this chapter. Our text this morning is found in verse 5. It's a beautiful passage emphasizing the states of the mediator, which our covenant youth in the Essentials in Reformed Doctrine class have been focusing upon, the state of humiliation, but then the state of exaltation. We hear the word of God in Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Thus far we read from God's infallibly inspired word. As I said, our text this morning is found here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, already in the opening chapter of this letter, the Apostle Paul has expressed his great love and his strong attachment to the congregation of the Philippians. 
which shares with him the same grace of Christ and fellowship in the gospel. And this was also the motivation for writing them in order that their love might abound yet more and more in knowledge. Recall last Sunday evening that excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, their Lord. Their love might abound yet more and more in knowledge and in spiritual discernment. That's verse 9 of the opening chapter. Even as his joy is in Christ and for him to live as Christ, even so he desires that the church of Jesus Christ shall share in that joy of Christ, living out of him, but also living unto him. The Apostle Paul feels compelled to encourage, to emphasize this, because he realizes that although the congregation of Philippi still stands strong in the faith of Christ, there are dangers. Already, envyings and jealousies, bitterness, party strife are making their appearance, which, if allowed to develop unchecked, can only result in spiritual damage and hurt, ruin in the church. They must be warned in this regard. And since these dangers are always present, as long as the church remains in this sinful world and consists of sinful members... This warning applies to the church until Christ returns. It applies to us. And so the apostle begins this second chapter with the emphatic and deeply touching appeal. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. He pleads with us that we should be of the same mind, motivated by the same love, having the same end in view, striving for the same things. He warns us against doing anything for selfish, carnal reasons or motivated by sinful pride. He urges that each may seek the welfare of the others and thus the good of the church of Christ. He appeals to the fact that we possess the grace of Christ as he emphasizes in the opening verse, in those repeated ifs, the point is clear. Since Christ dwells in you by his Spirit, since his love is the motivating principle in your lives, and since you share that love mutually in deep affection and concern for one another, be ye like-minded of one mind in the Spirit. Or... Very simply and to the point, as we have it in the words of our text, let this mind be in you, which was also 
in Christ Jesus. May God use this word unto our spiritual unity and well-being as congregation. So we consider our text this morning under the theme, The Mind of Christ in Us. And we notice, first of all, the meaning, secondly, the possibility, and finally, the significance. Very deliberately, and with good reason, the Apostle uses the expression, the mind of Christ. And the idea of the word mind in our text can best be defined as the disposition of the soul of man. Our mind, as Scripture speaks of it, is not simply the same as our intellect, our thinking. Our intellect involves only our thinking, while the word mind involves our will as well as our intellect. So that our minds determine our aims and ambitions, our plans and purposes, our seeking and our striving. The mind is the disposition of the soul which controls the channel in which we think and will decide things and speak and act. In a word, it gives direction to all of our conscious life so that if the mind is good, our life and walk will be good. But if our mind is evil, our life and walk are bound to be evil. And so the Apostle Paul can say to us that the same mind must be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is, we must be minded even as Christ was minded. So that immediately our attention and focus is upon the mind of Christ. Now both the personal name Jesus and his official title Christ are mentioned here in our text. He is Jesus, the promised Savior, As his name designates, he is Jehovah, salvation, the revelation of the God of our salvation who has come down to us in the person of the Son to save us from our sins. And his title, which designates his unique office, is the Christ, for he is the anointed of God. He is God's office bearer, the great servant who shows forth the glory of God's name according to God's eternal sovereign purpose. And in that capacity of the servant of Jehovah, he is the head of the church, the firstborn among many brethren, even the firstborn of all creation. And therefore he serves in the threefold capacity of prophet, priest, and king for the sake of his church, Before the face of God, he is Christ Jesus. And as Christ Jesus, he had a very definite mind during all the course of his earthly life and ministry. It's especially, particularly, to his earthly ministry that Paul is referring, as is plain from the following context. Christ had one disposition of heart, and intellect, one mind which determined all his motives and desires, his plans and purposes, his thoughts and words and deeds. It gave a single direction to 
all of his life, as long as he was among us, as a child already, and as he took up his public ministry, as he spoke and taught and performed miracles, and even as he suffered and died, he was always governed by that one mind. And that is so evident in all of Christ's life and was so essential to his public ministry that our text makes special mention of it here. For as this was the case with Christ, so it must be with us also by the grace of God. But what precisely then is that mind of Christ? And it's obvious from the verses that follow our text that the mind of Christ was the deep awareness of his being the servant of God and of the humility that was essential to his position as servant. And this extremely significant, beautiful passage, the Spirit points out to us that Jesus was always deeply aware of his calling to be the Christ, the office bearer of God. He never lost sight of that. He was determined that he should always maintain that calling in deepest humility, come what may. And this was what governed and controlled all his conscious life and all his walk as long as he was here upon the earth. So we read in verses 6 through 8 concerning Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Notice, Christ took upon him the form of a servant. And the idea is not that he merely adopted the outward appearance of a servant by the way he dressed or acted, but rather that he actually became a servant. His very form and essence were that of a servant. Christ did that already at his birth, as the passage points out. He was made in the likeness of men. He took our flesh and blood from the Virgin Mary. He came into the world as a son of man, born out of Adam in the line of the covenant. He was like us in all the weakness of sinful flesh, with but one thing excluded, namely, he had no sin. And he not only assumed our human nature, but he was also found in the fashion of a man all his life. As a babe, and he lay in the manger, as he clung to his mother in utter dependence, as he grew up as a boy of that day, as he was hungry and ate and thirsty and drank and grew weary and rested, he knew pain and sorrow, he experienced that this life is nothing but a continual death, all of this yet without sin. But remember, he did all this as God's servant. Christ Jesus, a 
sent of God to enter into our flesh, to become like unto us, in order that he might bear the burden of God's wrath against sin in perfect obedience in order to save us, all whom the Father had given him from our sins. He's obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For him, the way of obedience was that deep way of the cross. He walked that way without faltering. He gave himself as a lamb to the slaughter He bent his back to the smiters and gave his cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. He bore insult and mockery. He descended the ladder of suffering down, down, down to its lowest rung in the bottom of hell, so to speak, always bearing in obedient submission the wrath of God until he had borne it away. In his deep humility, he was always the servant, the obedient servant. That mind was in him. Notice, too, that he did this even while he was and is himself God. It's true, of course, that only as the Son of God could he bear that burden of the eternal wrath against our sins and bear it away. But the point of our text is that all that time, while he humbled himself as the great servant of God, he was God himself. He existed in the very form of God. He possessed all the divine attributes of infinite glory. He was, even when he was in the flesh, the sovereign God. And how easy it would have been for him from a natural point of view, to exert his sovereign power to his own personal advantage. Yet he never did. He was the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who bore the likeness of the Father, who was himself the radiation of the Father's glory, and yet that glory remained hidden behind the humility of the faithful servant. Understand it that it was exactly for this reason that God highly exalted him to the position of highest power and honor in heaven. As Paul speaks of it so beautifully in verses 9 through 11, wherefore, wherefore, through that deep way of suffering, humiliation, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That glory that Jesus now possesses in heaven is the reward of God on his accomplished work in the flesh, the glory that he possesses forever and shares with us in the new creation is still the reward on his perfect obedience in deepest humiliation, and the praise will be unto God forever. But two things are emphasized here for us in this connection. On the one hand, that Christ 
never rebelled. Christ was never disobedient. He never claimed to himself that which did not rightfully belong to him. And that's the idea of the expression, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We could more literally translate that expression as he did not deem the equality with God a thing to be grasped or stolen. Bear in mind, he is the servant of God, called to devote himself to God with his whole being, and yet he is God himself. How easily, humanly speaking, he could have claimed the power and glory of God as his own to be used to his own advantage, yet he was the faithful servant who never as much as contemplated doing a thing like that. The very thought of perpetrating such a robbery was repugnant to him. Yet he certainly had been tempted to do that very thing many times. Even you children recall how at the beginning of his public ministry, when he was fasting in the wilderness, the devil urged him to take advantage of his divine power by changing stones into bread. Why should he, the Son of God, suffer hunger? And then again on the pinnacle of the temple, the devil whispered the evil suggestion that Jesus could gain the attention and recognition of men by casting himself off before them. After all, he could command the angels to come to his rescue. Had not the psalmist spoken of that very thing? And then finally, the deceiver came with the horrific proposition that he could attain all the kingdoms of this world by bowing down to God's adversary. But in each case, Jesus flatly refused Later, the Jews offered to make him their earthly king. And again, he preferred to bring their hostility down upon his own head rather than that he should exalt himself. Never once did he forget that he was servant. He bore the reproach of men, became a stranger even to his brethren, was an offense to his mother's sons only because he would never show himself equal with God. His great glory would remain hidden for a time. And on the other hand, because that mind was in him, he made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. For God's sake, he put off all power, refused the praises of men. He maintained that lowly position of servant in deepest humility in all that he did. No doubt the clearest demonstration of that humility was given to his disciples on the evening of the Last Supper. When in the upper room, he girded himself with his towel and got down upon his knees and went about washing their feet. And that seemed so entirely improper to Peter that with an offended voice he asked, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? 
And the necessity of this act was pointed out by Christ himself when he answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. It all made such a lasting impression upon Peter that years later, obviously with this event in mind, he was inspired to write to the churches, Be ye clothed with the slave's girdle of humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As an example to us, as well as to fulfill his calling before God, Christ became a most humble servant in God's house, a nobody, as it were. For God's sake, he allowed himself to be taken by wicked men and falsely accused and unjustly condemned and punished with that shameful and accursed death of the cross. He gave himself unto death until he became, as it were, public enemy number one, the worst of criminals, an outcast of God and of men. And always he maintained I come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book, it is written concerning me. That, beloved, is the mind of Christ, the humble and faithful servant of God. And that's what our text is talking about when it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even as Christ was always aware of his position as servant in God's house, so should we be. Even as Christ wore the clothing of humility befitting his office, so should we be girded about with true humility. Even as he exercised that humility in all that he did, so must we. The mind of Christ must also be in us. But how is that possible? According to the commonly accepted interpretation of this passage, the Apostle Paul does nothing more than hold up Christ before us as our example, an example for us to follow. We must make the mind of Christ our own so that we are motivated in all of our lives even as he was. We must exercise humility over against God and over against each other even as Christ did. Which implies that humility is merely a natural gift which everyone possesses in a greater or lesser degree if he will only decide to put it into practice. It remains up to us to imitate Christ in our daily walk of life. Be not deceived. For the teaching of Scripture and the idea of our text is the very opposite. For the apostle proceeds from the basic assumption that no man is gifted with humility by nature, but that we are all proud and selfish and covetous. When in the verses following our text, the apostle points out that Christ never considered equality with God a thing to be grasped, he's referring to that chief sin 
of which we all make ourselves guilty. For by nature, a man craves nothing more than equality with God. And our motivating sin is always that we would be as God. We want to be independent. We want to be in control. We want to do as we please. That's what the Apostle obviously wants to bring to our attention when he uses that expression. And we must bear in mind that the devil made himself guilty of that very sin already at the dawn of history. The very first sin committed was the attempt to become equal with God. The devil was a servant of God in the exalted position as a prince among the angels, possibly the highest of them all, and yet he was not satisfied with that lofty position. He became proud, and his pride brought him to rebellion, and he reached out for the power and the honor that belonged solely to the living God. He wanted to rob God of his glory by claiming that glory for himself with the result that he would be cast out of heaven with all the angels that had joined him in his rebellion. Entering paradise, Satan instilled in Eve's soul that same vain dream of becoming like God. He assured her that it wouldn't hurt her to eat of that forbidden tree, no matter what God had said about it. In fact, all she had to do was do a little thinking on her own, she would realize that the very name of that tree suggested that it could be to her advantage to take and eat of it. For as the devil wants her to believe, God knew that in the day she would eat of that tree, she would become as God, knowing good and evil. As a result, Adam and Eve, our first parents who were created in the image of God as friend-servants, rebelled against God with a sinful ambition to become like him. They considered equality with God a thing to be stolen. And the consequence of this fall is that all of us are conceived and born in sin, the sin of proud rebellion, and man has become a thief before God. He claims to himself God's gifts and all of God's creation. He acts as if his life and his health, his strength, his possessions, his talents and abilities are all his own to do with them as he pleases. He considers his own selfish interests the only thing worth striving for in this world. He seeks the big I, me, myself, and I, our own selfish ends, craving after riches and power and fame, honor of men. He uses all of God's marvelous creation to sin, subjecting everything to his own evil purposes, claiming all of it as if it were his very own to do with as he pleases. He would give account to no one for all his actions, but to himself. In a word, his mind is the mind of his father, the devil, Satan. 
in proud rebellion against the living God, who alone is God, he would try to be God's equal. And we learn that from history's light, do we not? Very early in history, consider Cain, how he chose his own sacrifice, the fruit of the ground. God should be satisfied with that for a sacrifice. After he was cast out from the presence of God, he made himself a city in defiance to God. Think of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, and his followers who proceeded to build the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. Consider King Nebuchadnezzar, even after he had been duly warned of God, how he boasted that he himself had built this great kingdom. Think of King Herod accepting the praise of men as if he were God. It's the wicked ambition of all who worship idols, who corrupt the truth of Scripture with human philosophy, who seek the treasures and pleasures of sin or the fame and praise of men, all of which will finally culminate in the man of sin, the Antichrist, who will sit upon the throne and be worshipped by men as if he were God. Man would be as God. And therefore God's curse rests upon him. The fallen sinner has lost the right to be servant in God's house. He has no right to the mind of Christ. He is also incapable of exercising it. He is proud and selfish. He hates God and the neighbor and reveals that in all his selfish ways. Make no mistake, a mere example never would be sufficient to change the heart and will and thought of men to accept the mind of Christ. That example only arouses the hatred and opposition that causes them to crucify the Christ daily. But, beloved, let us bear in mind that Paul is speaking to those who know the grace of Christ Jesus. As he stated already in the first chapter, Paul is confident that they share that grace with him in the fellowship of the gospel. The point of view of our text is exactly that Christ took upon himself the form of a servant to deliver us from all our sinful pride. He has merited for us the right to be restored in the image of God, even in the likeness of the image of Christ, in order that we be servants in God's house. He has sent his Spirit into our hearts to deliver us from sin and death in order that henceforth we should not live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. And we are given a rightful place in the covenant fellowship of God. We are made sincerely willing and ready to serve God in the office of believer, prophets, priests, and kings in Christ before his face. 
It applies to every true member of the Church of Christ as the Apostle expresses it so beautifully in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. All of which should the work of the Spirit make us very humble, for we confess together we are not of ourselves worthy of a place in God's church. We're not fit for the place to which we've been called. It's only God's marvelous grace that has called us to that work which he has given us to do, even as we seek to fulfill our calling, we realize that it will be accomplished in much weakness and that our best efforts will be polluted with sin. And we are in need of a daily confession of sin and daily forgiveness from our Heavenly Father as well as a daily bearing with one another in all our weaknesses. And together we humbly admit that God is not dependent upon us in any way. We can give Him nothing. As far as we ourselves are concerned, we would only stand in the way, as it were, with all our imperfections. The wonder of grace is that this cannot interfere with the purpose and work of the Lord. But He who has called us is also able to accomplish His work. Through us, his strength is accomplished through our weakness so that weakest means fulfill his will. And so we humbly acknowledge, as we have again this morning, as we do every worship service, our help is in the name of Jehovah who made heaven and earth through prayer and supplication accompanied by thanksgiving, our needs are supplied. And so it is that the apostle can admonish us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ can be an example for us only because The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. And His humility is the gift of God to us since His love has been shed abroad into our hearts. We love God only because He first loved us. We love one another because we love God. And we can exercise that love in humility before God and over against one another only because the love of God abounds within us. And therefore, we must take heed to this warning against our own selfish, foolish pride. In humility, we must bow before the Word of God. We must subject all things to the rule and the authority of the Scriptures, together with our Reformed confessions. We must take that very seriously, where we're all inclined by nature to promote our own 
ideas and opinions and philosophies. May we live in the consciousness that we are all but servants, servants of God, underservants of Jesus Christ. James has admonished us in his epistle that we should not be many masters or teachers knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. We must not in pride assume the position that we know it all, that wisdom rests with us. Indeed, one may have more abilities, be far more gifted in some respects than another, but be not filled with pride or with jealousy. Let each make proper use of the gifts he has received. For what does any one of us have that we have not received? As Jesus warns us, let no man call thee rabbi, for one is master, even Christ, and ye are brethren. It's necessary for us to bear that in mind, beloved, that we are together only disciples sitting at the feet of Jesus to be taught by him. And that applies as well in our relationships with others and with one another. Must be willing to assume the servant's garb and to bend down, wash each other's feet. Must serve one another for the good of Christ's church. Must be able to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. On the other hand, we must be willing also to have our feet washed. We must want to be forgiven by each other, even as we seek forgiveness from above. Or to put it positively, we must live out of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize His authority and His alone. We sit at His feet as disciples to be taught by Him. We deem it a privilege to be clothed with that same servant's clothing that made him pleasing to God in order that we also may be accepted in God's sight as we are in Christ. And we look to him for the strength. We trust in his guidance in every circumstance of life. We are seeking to serve his purpose unto the glory of our God, even as we have One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Even so, we have one calling, one ambition, one goal, that together, as it were, many voices in one choir, harmonizing perfectly, bringing forth a melodious song of praise, we might together serve our God. The world of unbelief around us would emphasize teamwork, or perhaps even cooperation. We emphasize the power of Christ working in each of us according to the eternal sovereign purpose of God. It's precisely the emphasis in the previous context here of Philippians 2, fulfill ye 
My joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, that each esteem other better than themselves. Understand, beloved, this begins right in our own homes. Having the mind of Christ means that as husbands, we love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. And as wives, we submit to our own husbands as the church humbly strives to submit to Christ. As parents, we would bring up our children in the fear of God. As children and young people, we would honor, humbly honor the authority of our parents and teachers and those whom God places in authority over us. And in the midst of the church, having the mind which was also in Christ means that when one stumbles, one falls into a way of sin, we are there in the love of Christ to help the call to repentance, to kneel together at the cross. And we visit one another in our sicknesses and encourage one another in all our trials and troubles. We comfort one another in our sorrows and instruct and guide one another in the way of godliness and humility. We seek the eternal welfare of each other as members of the body of Christ. We would give of our very selves in service of one another. In a word, be ye clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace to the humble is our incentive according to the plain implication of the text. We have the example of Christ himself, the very Son of God, yet he took on him the form of a servant, deeply humbled himself, faithfully walked that way of obedience to the Father, even when when it involved the accursed death of the cross, refused to depart from that way, even when the way of escape from death and the way of earthly gain was offered to him, he did that for our sakes and in obedience to God, the more reason why we should be willing and should earnestly endeavor to crucify the flesh and walk the way of obedience and thankfulness when for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. For in addition, we have the grace of Christ in us. We not only may serve God and one another, but we are also made willing and able. Christ dwells in us. He works His work through us. And finally, we have the incentive crown of life that awaits us. Or as we shall, Lord willing, see this evening, that heavenly inheritance. Even as Christ has gone into glory, we share that glory with him. Even as Christ was rewarded with a name which is above every name, 
His work in us is rewarded that we shall also receive our own new name from the Father. And we shall live forever with the saints to the praise of his glory. For there every tongue shall praise him, each of us showing forth that praise in perfect unison, in harmony with all the saints, confessing together in word and deed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it unto our hearts and lives by Thy Spirit, we pray. May we not be mere hearers, but also doers thereof, ever seeking Thy grace, that we may be humble before Thee and before one another, servants in Thy house. To Thy glory and praise, we ask it, with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.